liberals are going crazy, my friends. Crazy. And that would be an understatement. Why? Because within the space of a week, the United States Supreme Court has dealt unimaginable blows to two things which they are absolutely wedded to. The suppression of people's gun rights and the maintenance of women's unregulated abortion rights. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie Dury and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show and you can do so in one of three easy ways. You can either download the free Podbean app at either the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store, or you can go to either of those two stores and simply search out the Jamie Dury Show podcast and listen to it on your native podcast aggregator app. Whichever way you decide to go, you'll be able to leave reviews, comments, and please, we desperately need both. The more we get of a very, very positive nature, the faster the show will grow and the more offerings we'll be able to give you. So please give us a five-star review and recommend us to your friends. So, two things that the left, as I said in my introduction, are extremely wedded to, the suppression of Americans' right to own and carry firearms and the maintenance of abortion rights at a woman's discretion, regardless of what point in the pregnancy it occurs, have been undermined by the United States Supreme Court in two sweeping decisions. And the left has been apoplectic over this, even going so far as to leaking a draft opinion by Judge Alito last month and doxing the members of the Supreme Court so that they are protested at and attacked outside their homes. Their children are assaulted verbally and attacked outside of schools. They're now under U.S. Marshal Protection. If Trump and the Justice Department had done this, or the right had done this with anything having to do with the left, you would have never heard the end of it, but they think this is completely acceptable. In the minds of the left, the end justifies the means regardless of what that end is. So let's unpack all these decisions. First, let's look at the gun rights case. Since it happened first, no particular order. I know everybody wants to hear about Roe v. Wade, but I'll get to that in a minute. One of the most conservative, if not the most conservative, justices on the court and the longest standing justice on the court, Judge Clarence Thomas, wrote the opinion on gun rights. Now, it was a 6-3 majority opinion, 6-3. That means all of the conservative justice justices, even that waffling Roberts, uh, signed on to this opinion. Only the diehard leftists, Judge Sotomayor, Justice Breyer, who's going to be retiring soon because they don't want him dropping dead in office. Uh, God forbid he doesn't drop dead till after Joe Biden gets kicked out or run out. They don't want another conservative making it a seven to two court. And of course, Justice Kagan, they wrote it, voted against it. But in the 6-3 majority opinion, Justice Thomas wrote that the court agrees, quote, that the second and 14th amendments protect an individual's right to carry a handgun for self-defense outside the home. The case in question was the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin can be considered the first major Second Amendment case to be heard by the Supreme Court in at least a decade. 
New York's law had required an individual to show that they had proper cause to obtain a concealed carry license. Gun Owners of America, GOA, that's another group, hailed the decision saying that New York's laws allowed government entities to review and routinely deny at their discretion applicants who applied for a concealed carry permit. Other than New York, several other states and Washington, D.C. had similar may issue laws, meaning at our discretion, you may, including California, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. No surprise there with those states. A spokesperson for GOA, the Gun Owners of America, Eric Pratt, said this is a tremendous victory for all American gun owners who cherish their God-given right to protect themselves and their families. And remember that. I'm sure that many of the liberals don't like to hear this, but our founding fathers were men of great faith, and they believed that these rights that they've identified in the United States Constitution, a document unlike it in the history of mankind, come from God himself and are not something that is conferred upon us by any government made of men. It's something we enjoy as entities of a higher order, unlike any other form of life on this planet. We have the power to change it, shape it as we wish. The National Rifle Association issued similar statements. Uh, The NRA said, this decision unequivocally validates the position of the NRA and should put lawmakers on notice. No law shall be passed that impinges this individual freedom, said Uh, Vice President Wayne LaPierre. It also confronts a troubling problem with the state uh, Senate legislation underscoring that these freedoms should not be left to unguided discretion of state and federal officials. Second Amendment freedoms belong to the people. And once the Supreme Court says that Second Amendment freedoms belong to the people, no legislative body can abridge those freedoms. Because even though the Supreme Court should not be legislating from the bench, they do have a very, very strong power, the power of judicial review and the power to declare legislation unconstitutional. Now, once they've determined that this is a second, this Second Amendment is an inviolable right of the people, no legislative body, no matter how duly elected, can pass laws to undermine that freedom. They would therefore be determined unconstitutional as soon as it reaches the Supreme Court based on this decision, and that would be the end of it. Now, Judge Alito and Judge Kavanaugh, they sided with the majority, uh, but they wrote that this decision passed down this Thursday is limited, noting that the concealed carry law that the Supreme Court ruled on was separate from various laws requiring permits to own handguns. The SAFE Act, which was enacted into law in 2013, contains the pistol permit provision, whereas the concealed carry law is more than 100 years old and is separate from the SAFE Act. So Alito in particular, I I wanted to read these quotes because I wanted to put this in context. Judge Alito in particular wrote that the ruling, quote, decides nothing about who may lawfully possess a firearm or the requirements that must be met to buy a gun, nor does it decide anything about the kinds of weapons that people may possess. Now, let me put this in perspective, because there's a lot of people out there who are misinterpreting this. They think that because of what the Supreme Court did, anybody can go out and buy a gun, do whatever they want. That's not the case. 
If you are barred by law from owning a gun, such as if you're a convicted felon, unless that law is overturned, you can't have a gun. So therefore, states and governments have a right to do an investigation, a background check on you, to make sure that you conform with the law and that you are not a person who should be excluded from firearms ownership because of a criminal conviction. However, what this law does do is absent those restrictions, absent that past conduct of felon, you don't have to demonstrate any particular need over and above your God-given right to self-defense and to possess your firearm uh, in order to obtain a full concealed carry permit. You see, New York City was very, very tricky with this. New York City had several levels of permits. They would give almost anyone who wasn't a felon a premise permit. But under their rules of carry, their administrative laws, that gun had to stay on a premise. And you could only take it to a target range twice a year. And you had to inform the New York City Police Department when you were doing that. A target and hunting permit, on the other hand, in New York City, the gun could be kept in your house loaded. It could also be taken to and from a shooting range or to and from lawful hunting activity. But the gun had to be unloaded and in a locked box when it was being transported. It's not much use that way, but those are the rules they had. Only people who were granted a full carry permit could carry a loaded gun within the city of New York. State of New York is a different matter. And the only people that were ever granted those things routinely were retired law enforcement members or people who typically carried exorbitant sums of money or valuables, such as diamond dealers uh, who carried, not uncommon to carry several hundred thousand dollars in stones, uh, precious uh, gems. They would be granted, but very, very few others. Now what the Supreme Court has said is, look, as long as this person is not on a prohibited list, as long as he's done nothing in his life that would have deprived him of the right to carry a gun by virtue of criminal conduct and having a felony conviction, as long as he's allowed to carry a gun, you can't tell him he can't carry it all the time. That's basically what this is. Now, how this is going to shake out in the state of New York, where even people who have permits outside the city of New York, because you get your permit from the county of residence, are not allowed to carry it within the city of New York. So, for instance, if you're a precious gems dealer and you live in Brooklyn and you have a full carry permit issued by the New York City Police Department, you can carry that gun anywhere in New York State. But if you're a precious gems dealer and you're living in Scarsdale, which is in Westchester County, New York, just outside the city, and you carry the gun into the city, then you couldn't carry it because your permit wasn't issued by the city of New York. But now by virtue of this, I think that if you are, if you are a licensed pistol permit holder, all of those restrictions go out the window. It seems that the only right or the core right that the Supreme Court is maintaining for state, local, and federal governments in the regulation of gun ownership is the right to ensure with prudence that the people they grant the permits to are not criminals, and that they are people who are lawfully entitled to possess them that haven't done anything to forfeit their firearms rights. But once the state has determined that, the Second Amendment says these people have a right to carry it wherever they wish, and that's that. Now, that's a big, 
big win for gun owners. So it's be interesting to see how this shakes out, especially now as the Senate is poised to pass uh, restrictive gun laws in light of the shooting in Texas. But again, getting back to that shooting in Texas, which I spoke about um, over a week ago, a week and a half ago on the show, the loss of life was exacerbated there because of a reluctance on the part of law enforcement to engage these this incredibly insane individual. I said before, you get on the scene of a shooting that you're summoned to and you don't hear any shooting, I could understand not doing anything. Everything seems to be at a status quo. You don't want to precipitate anything. Anything could be happening. Everyone could be dead or a few people may be dead or maybe no one is dead. Maybe this guy is holding people hostage. So we don't want to precipitate violence. But when you get to the scene, and you hear shots going off like these people did. You can't sit there and wait and decide what you're going to do. Your oath of office requires you to protect the public and the citizenry. Every police officer likes to enter a location in as safe as manner as possible. But when exigency requires that safety be dispensed with in order to save the lives of the innocent, you go in. If you didn't want to take that risk, you shouldn't have raised your hand and took the oath. Can't have it both ways. I've said that before. We're great fans of law enforcement on this show, but we call it like we see it. If it wasn't for that off-duty Border Patrol agent, God knows how many more people would have died. Swift justice. Carry it out. And so, on to the next business. Roe v. Wade. Now, Roe v. Wade has been something that the left has been defending ever since it was decided. And people who were legal scholars have been great critics of that decision because they say it was wrongfully decided, and it was. And there are legal questions here, quite beyond the moral question of whether an unborn child ought to stand to be born at the sole discretion of the mother. There are big legal questions here. And it is for as much for these legal questions that supreme uh, that conservatives rather have opposed Roe v. Wade more than just simply the sanctity of life. Now, the religious right, of course, opposes it on those grounds also, um, but there are strong legal grounds. Let's talk about the sanctity of life for a moment, and then we'll get to the the big legal question. <clears throat> I believe it wasn't until Roe v. Wade that the term trimesters entered the public lexicon. They divided the pregnancy into three separate time frames of three months each, pregnancies, of course, being nine months in human beings. In the first trimester, the child, the fetus, whatever you wish to call it, is at a state where it is not yet viable outside the mother's womb. If it were taken out of the mother's womb, it could not survive, not by any miracle of science. Accordingly, many people felt that there was not a compelling moral reason uh, why a woman should not be allowed at her discretion to terminate that pregnancy. And it's hard to argue with that. I know there are religious and rabbinical scholars who would argue that the minute a cell has been fertilized, it is nascent human life and therefore should be protected 
uh, it is a potential child of God. But that's a bit of a stretch for a lot of people. So I don't think you can make a compelling argument to prevent that. So the interest of the mother definitely is preeminent in the first trimester. Now we come to the second trimester. Well, in the second trimester, we have a child that, depending when in the trimester it is, may or may not be viable outside the womb. So this has always been a gray area. And the question becomes, who do we defer to? The mother or to the state who is ostensibly supposed to be representing the interests of this child, this nascent human life, which now is not so nascent, is maybe viable outside the womb. You see, there's always been a great hypocrisy among the left. They oppose the death penalty on the grounds that it is uncivilized, that no civilized society should be executing people. But when we execute people in a civilized society, it's people that are fully formed adults and have committed crimes knowingly and intentionally. And we're punishing them. When we execute an unborn child through an abortion, we are killing pure innocents who have done nothing. Now, there are laws against murder. And the laws against murder have never been applied to abortion because all of the relevant cultural ethos that the left has wrapped themselves around in order to defend these actions essentially assign no value to the life of the fetus. The minute you assign value to the life of the fetus, now it's not just some undefined entity. It's a human being or a potential human being. And there are already laws on the books that require society to protect human beings. So now the state has much more of an interest as to whether or not it wishes to intervene. But even if that is unclear to you, or unclear to most people, clearly when you get into the third trimester, this is viable human life. Especially now, the the advances of science, very easy for a child to be born at six months or seven months into pregnancy and survive. Very easy. Does it all the time. We have NICU units, intensive care units for, for babies, all the time. And yet, we've gone from Roe v. Wade saying that abortion was a constitutionally guaranteed right to actually allowing partial birth abortions. And let me explain that to people who don't know what it is. Under the auspices of a partial birth abortion, using the threadbare excuse that the life of the mother is at risk, a baby could be in the ninth month. It could be the day it's ready to be delivered. They take it out, they leave the head inside, so he's partially born. The doctor, who would have to be a barbarian to even consider this medical practice and do this, now uh, inserts shears at the base of the baby's skull, cuts the brainstem, sucks out his brain with a vacuum, and kills it. This is called partial birth abortion. And I remember the day my son was born, and I watched him born, and he was delivered C-section because uh, he was breech, and my wife's stomach was very, very tight because she'd done a lot of working out. And the last thing that came out was his head. And uh, two seconds later, his whole body was free, and I was looking at my, my beautiful baby boy, who's now 13 and just got bar mitzvah. 
And I'm wondering what was so different about him two seconds before when his head was still inside my mother's, his mother's uh, stomach. There was no difference. It's out-and-out out murder to terminate a pregnancy that way. So the state does have an interest. So now let's get to the legal argument, or the argument that everybody's interested in. People who want to have an abortion want to continue to have a right to have an abortion. But just because people think something's a right doesn't mean it, it is a right. People in the pre-Civil Rights South thought they had a right not to, reserve, not to serve uh, blacks sandwiches in a cafeteria until they were told otherwise, that it wasn't a right. The big legal objection that the conservatives had with Roe v. Wade is that it basically invented a right that doesn't exist. The founding fathers, brilliant men that they were, <clears throat> recognized the danger of a central government that was too powerful, which is why they envisioned something very unique and that the primary governance of the country should be at the state level, meaning a local law if a local law works. No state law if a local law will work. No federal law if a state law will work. And so, the Tenth Amendment of the United States Constitution, if you care to read it, states that all powers not specifically delegated to the federal government by this Constitution reverts to the states or to the people. They didn't want the federal government doing any more than the minimum, like provide for the common defense, have a standing army, so forth and so on. That's very specific. So how did the Supreme Court, the liberal Supreme Court, get around this when they decided Roe v. Wade? It's very simple. Just make everything subjective and make it say what you want it to say. Suddenly the right to privacy which was the right of a person to be secure in their person, things, and effect, meaning the right not to be ripped out of your home, the right to not have your property stolen to be secure. All of a sudden they said, oh yeah, the right to an abortion is right in there. It's right there in the middle of the right to privacy. Now this, of course, is inventive. This is people who are trying to twist words. The minute you start twisting words, they become unrecognizable after a period of time. We've all played that game in school where somebody whispers a phrase or something in a person's ear and we go around the room. By the time it gets back to you, it's unrecognizable. You take the law, you take the Constitution, you take anything that's supposed to be hallowed and revered, and you subject it to that kind of interpretation over decades or even centuries. And pretty soon, it bears no resemblance to what it was originally designed to be. That's why I've always been a fan of strict constitutional constructionists, such as Justice Scalia, whom, thankfully, Amy Comey Barrett is a student of, because this preserves that which was and maintains it. And so, the way it was decided here was because since the right to abortion is not part of the right to privacy, since it's not something specifically that the federal government is empowered to do under the Constitution, all matters pertaining to abortion, the regulation thereof, the prohibition thereof, reverts to the states. And so first, let me just address that at this point, 
All of you young ladies who are out there have been told for decades that the minute Roe v. Wade's overturned, you're no longer going to be able to get an abortion. It's not true. All it means is that there's no federally guaranteed right to an abortion. Each of the 50 states can treat the issue as they see fit. Now, I know that there's got to be at least 30, 38 states, 35 states out of 50 that are going to continue to have abortions. You know you're going to get an abortion in New York. You know you're going to get an abortion in California, Massachusetts, Illinois, any place where the Democrats or the liberals rule, you're going to be able to get abortion. And if you happen to live in a state where you don't have an abortion right because the state makes it against the law, you are free to travel to another state to get that abortion. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, that's very inconvenient. Well, I think abortion isn't something that you should be having very often, like getting a cavity filled in a tooth. So I don't think it'd be too inconvenient. is isn't like you'd be traveling for abortions every three months. At least you shouldn't be. Now, the, the Epic Times here had a listing, I believe, of certain states um, that were going to restrict abortion. Now, they say two dozen states are going to restrict abortions. That seemed a little high to me. I think by restricting it, I think that means they're going to be more closely regulating uh, abortion and perhaps eliminating um, these partial birth abortions that I, I alluded to earlier, that they were unable, they felt, to stop because of Roe v. Wade. So let me just give you some of the listing of some of the states. It says more than two dozens, uh, two dozen. They are Arkansas. Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. Five more states had respective bans on abortion from the time before the Roe v. Wade ruling in 1973. And by, by the way, Roe, the woman Roe, went on to have her baby and is now a big pro-life advocate, just so you know, a little history. They include Alabama, Arizona, Michigan, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. Georgia, Iowa, Ohio, and South Carolina, according to the Guttmacher Institute, which is a research group, have laws that ban abortions after the six-week six week mark. Or they had laws. Those laws will be revisited after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Legislatures in Florida, Indiana, Montana, and Nebraska appear likely to ban abortion based on previous and current efforts, the group says. I think you're going to find that the basic effect of this decision is going to be that a few states are going to out-and-out ban abortions. Uh, very few of those will do that. And most of them are just simply going to restrict abortions to take place in a more reasonable period of time. I don't think a woman should have to make a decision two days before her child is born that, oh, I suddenly need to abort it. If you know you're pregnant and you don't want to have the pregnancy, I'm not going to sit here and wave the religious flag and say it's, a, it's nascent life, you can't destroy it. If you find out that you've missed your cycle and you're a month pregnant, and you wish to go to a doctor and have an abortion before the first trimester is over, or maybe even in the very, very beginning of the second trimester, I don't think you're going to get very much pushback from the majority of Americans, and you're certainly not going to get it from me. But these 
I can't say it anyway. These absolute out-and-out horrific murders of fully formed babies is, to me, insanity. Overall, 26 of the 50 states are likely or certain to ban abortion after the ruling was handed down. I don't think you're going to get 26 states banning it outright. I think this is being misquoted. I think what you're going to find is there's going to be restrictions, but they're not going to ban it. The quote here from the Gutmarker Institute, which I think is fear-mongering, states that beyond the 26 states certain or likely to attempt to ban abortion immediately, other uh, states have demonstrated hostility toward abortion by adopting multiple restrictions in the past, but are not likely to ban abortion in the near future. Notably, North Carolina has a pre-row abortion ban in place, but it is unclear if the state's law would be implemented quickly. Another thing I saw uh, in response to this decision by people on the left was that they felt it was a, it was a racist opinion in that it was going to disproportionately affect women of color and minorities. And I don't know how you make that judgment. Uh, there's a substantial minority population in the most liberal states in this country, California, New York, uh, Massachusetts, Illinois, uh, those states we've already stated, they're going to allow abortion. They're not going to stop it. New Jersey, they're not going to stop abortion. So the notion that this thing is going to disproportionately affect uh, people of uh, women of color, I think is, is a canard. I think it's nonsense. Unless you're also trying to make the very racist statement that women of color more irresponsibly and frequently get pregnant, therefore necessitating a greater number of abortions, uh, I think you're, you're, you're uh, barking up the wrong tree with that argument. Among the people who made statements regarding this decision was one man you may have heard of by the name of Donald J. Trump. And he has every right to crow about it and take credit. And his statement was that the overturning of Roe v. Wade was only made possible because I delivered. And in point of fact, President Trump did deliver. He ran on a platform in 2016 that he would appoint conservative judges along the lines of Judge Antonin Scalia. And when the opportunities arose, he did that. He put conservative judges on any position on the federal bench and the circuit court, and he put three Supreme Court justices on that court in one four-year term, which is almost unprecedented. I can't remember any time in my life where a president put three justices on within the space of four years. I've seen presidents get three justices on maybe in the space of eight years, but not four years. This was unprecedented. All the stars were aligned, and maybe God had a hand in that. The quote from President Trump, Today's decision, which is the biggest win for life in a generation, along with other decisions that have been announced recently, were only made possible because I delivered everything as promised, including nominating and getting three highly respected and strong constitutionalists confirmed to the United States Supreme Court. Yes, President Trump, you did deliver. And I'm sure if you get the opportunity to serve as this nation's president again, you will continue to deliver. All I do is implore people to listen to the president, the former president. Don't listen, if you don't wish to, about his remarks on the 2020 election, even though myself and a substantial number of people believe the election was stolen, and I can prove to the election was stolen. But I can understand why he's understandably bitter about that. 
And if he talks about it, just sort of let it go in one ear and out the other. The only thing you should be listening to is what Donald Trump says he will do when he becomes president. And based on what he did the first time, we have a pretty good idea of what he is going to do. He's going to make his energy independent again. He's going to make the American military respected and feared in the world. We're not going to have incursions into other sovereign nations like Ukraine on the part of Russia because they realize they have a senile incompetent in the White House. Fuel prices will come down, the markets will rebound, and prosperity will return. What's not to like about that? I submit very little. Enjoy your weekend. For The Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.